and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Mary Laura Philpott back to the program today. Mary Laura has appeared on Book Talk for both of her previous books in 2015 with her collection of cartoons, Penguins with People Problems. In 2019, we spoke about her collection of personal essays, I Miss You When I Blink. Today, we'll be discussing her most recent release, Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, which is published by Etria Books. Mary Laura, you start off Bomb Shelter with a prelude, a memory of waiting in the Gulf of Mexico when you were young. In the original draft of this book, that chapter lived somewhere in the middle, and I knew it belonged in Bomb Shelter. I knew this story about, I think I was like eight or nine years old, and I was dancing in the water at the beach, and I had my back to the shore, and I was looking out at the horizon at the water, and all of a sudden I got out of my own head and recognized, oh, the people are screaming behind me. And I turned around to look at the beach and all the adults had gathered at the water's edge and they were all kind of screaming, get out, get out, get out and waving their hands. And I didn't understand what was going on. And it was a really jarring moment that obviously stuck with me for years and years and years. And what ultimately ended up happening after I ran out of the water and found my mom and I was like, what? I realized everyone else who had been playing in the water had heard someone say, everybody get out. There are stingrays coming through. I hadn't heard it. So I was just standing there dancing and singing and talking to myself while stingrays were whipping past my ankles. I knew it belonged in this book because so much of Bomb Shelter is about dealing with the reality of hidden dangers all around us, but I didn't know where it belonged. And it was toward one of the final drafts that I realized I need to take this and put it up at the beginning because you meet me in Bomb Shelter kind of as an adult for most of the book, and I'm dealing with things that are happening to other people around me. But I wanted to make sure that readers never lost sight of the fact that the book is not about my kid. It's not about my family. It's not about my dad. It's about me. It's about once upon a time, there was a girl who wanted to have some control over her life and was generally a happy-go-lucky person who believed that if she did things right and if she loved people hard enough, she could keep everyone safe. But then something happened that turned her world upside down and she had to figure out how to keep going once she realized that loving people hard enough is not enough to keep them safe. So you had to meet me as a character at the beginning. And I like the idea of having it me as a child before all these other people came into my life. So that's how that ended up at the front of the book, not where it originally started. Do you think that was an inciting incident for your kind of aspiration toward control? <laughs> it was certainly a memorable incident. I mean, I never forgot it, and it, it pops into my head all the time. There, there was a span of years where I forgot that happened, and then something kind of, I don't even know what prompted it a few years ago, but it kind of floated back up in my memory, and I was like, oh my gosh, remember that time I was at the beach? and all the stingrays were around me. It may not have been like an inciting incident, but it was certainly a relevant incident. When I got into this phase of life that I write about at Bomb Shelter, which is sort of midlife and all the things that have been stable for a long time are destabilizing. My parents are getting older. I've turned into this middle-aged person. A really terrifying health crisis comes for one of my kids. All of a sudden, I was thinking a lot about how do we prepare for every different kind of threat that could come for us and our loved ones. So no wonder that popped back up into my memory. I had thought maybe it was jellyfish before you did the reveal of the stingrays when you were talking about <laughs> trash bags. I was thinking, ah, jellyfish, yeah. Yeah, they look kind of like sandwich bags, yeah. Or a Portuguese man of war. Right. <laughs> also not something you want to be <laughs> dancing around with in the ocean. The book proper, you start off and you're dealing with back issues at Christmas time. Yes. And uh, that's got to be a delightful time to be tweaked. 
I'm always dealing with back issues. I have messed up my back in the most unglamorous way possible. And it started over a decade ago with just, you know, kind of feeling like I would be drying my hair, like holding the hair dryer over my head and going, oh, what is that? I've tweaked my back. What's going on? And I kept trying to figure out what I had done. And I finally went to go see a doctor about it. And they said, do you spend a lot of time on a laptop? And I was like, yes. And they said, show me how you sit when you're working on your laptop. And I showed them how I sit kind of curled up like an S on my sofa with the computer open, looking down with like my neck aimed down. And they're like, yeah, that's what you've done. You have two herniated discs and you've done it by sitting hunched over a laptop for too long. So that is how I hurt myself, which is utterly embarrassing, but it's never left me. My back is always giving me trouble. If you were to scroll back far enough on my Instagram, you would find a post from that night that I start that chapter with where I'm lying on my back on the floor, looking up at the Christmas tree and the ceiling. And in that chapter, I write that I whispered out loud to myself, hello from upside down, because I was looking at the room all turned topsy-turvy. And I actually have an Instagram post from that night of the top of my Christmas tree taken from below. And the caption is hello from upside down. Always taking notes, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that was the last night. I mean, that that moment happens at the beginning of the book because that was the last night before everything in my life changed. The next morning at 4 a.m., I woke up to what I thought, my husband and I both woke up suddenly to what we couldn't make sense of the sound. I thought it was somebody ramming down our front door, but it turned out to be the sound of my son's body hitting the bathroom floor. We found him on the bathroom floor. He was having a seizure. He had gotten up to get a glass of water and just dropped. And he was, you know, at the time, 15 and a half years old. So full man size person hitting the floor and then repeatedly hitting the floor as he sees. That's what we were hearing. And I write in Bomb Shelter in that next chapter about calling 911 and that surreal experience of pushing the buttons 911 and thinking this cannot be happening and the ambulance coming and going to the hospital with him and finding out at the end of that day that he had epilepsy which just came utterly out of the blue we did not see that coming and from then on I would always know and I'm still there now but for the rest of the book I would always know There is this threat hanging over one of my dearest loved ones, my firstborn child. He has something that could take his life anytime. Now, how do we all get up and keep going with that? And it seems that you had kind of a split decision-making process while you were trying to, to help your son and that there was a calm side who knew what to do, but then there was the racing side of, of pure emotional terror. Yeah, there's so many moments in life and several of these moments come up in this book, but I think about this all the time. We have all these different little neighborhoods in our brain and I don't always think about the way they interact. But when I reflect back on really important moments like that one, all the different parts of my brain were firing at the same time. There was the part that remembered 20 years ago that my first job as a professional writer, my first time I was ever paid money to write things was... Uh, working in the marketing department of a children's hospital. And it was my job to write uh, patient and parent education material. So I had written brochures about what to do in case of a seizure. So as I was standing in the bathroom looking over my son, that just bubbled right back up. And my brain was like, put something soft under his head. Do not put anything in his mouth. Don't try to hold him down. Like all that came back to me. So there was that part of my brain. Then there was this very practical mom part of my brain. I was looking down at his feet because that's what we saw first when we walked in the bathroom were his feet. I looked down and I thought, oh my God, I've got to get him new shoes. 
his feet are so big because he was at that phase, you know, where he was like outgrowing his clothes and his shoes every six weeks. And then there was the part of me that was just on fire. I mean, the part of my brain that was just like, no, this can't be happening. This is the thing I've always dreaded without knowing it's what I dreaded. The universe has come to take my child. So all these things were happening at the same time. And I think that's so common that our brains are firing on multiple cylinders at once. But when I really slowed down to go back and look at that night or look at that morning and go, okay, what was I thinking? I was thinking so many different things at once. But even before that, in the evening, when you're lying down looking at the Christmas tree, you're in in reverie and it's like a dozen or more memories are coming flooding back over the time. You're even remembering when your father sent you canned food when you're in college. Yes. A funny dad. I was thinking about, you know, it was right before Christmas. So I was kind of going through my gift list. Like, had I gotten something for everyone? What day were we going to go down and visit my parents in Georgia? I need to figure when that's going to be on the calendar. And then that got me thinking about my parents just in general. And just, oh, my dad is such a quirky, quirky individual. He's sort of this like wacky, mad scientist doctor who he does these very sophisticated operations on people and he's invented and patented his own surgical tools. And he's always been so quirky. And I remember when I went off to college, he used to send these care packages that were like, not like the care packages anybody else got and not like the ones I got from my mom. Like if my mom sent a package, it would be like a Ziploc bag of cookies and some magazines and maybe a $20 bill. And when my dad sent a care package, it would be a, a cardboard box stacked full of canned food, like canned fruit, canned meat, canned vegetables, <laughs> and no note, like nothing else in there, just canned food. And my roommate and I would laugh and, and go, what does he think we're doing? Does he think we're building like some sort of survival stockpile? Does he not know that we have a dining hall? And we would eat it. I mean, you know, free food, you're in college, we, we would eat it, but we couldn't eat it as fast as it accumulated. And we used to joke and call them bomb shelter boxes. And much later in the book, I tell a story about being an adult just a few years ago and finding out something about my dad's professional past that had been a secret my whole life that explained why that was his way of showing care for his child who had gone off to college. And it kind of all clicked into place. But I enjoyed sort of creating the structure around that memory of my dad and when I was in college and then the revelation much later in my life and much later in the book of why he was doing that kind of the long game of I'm dropping you this hint and you may not know why I'm telling you but later you're going to get it I love that and there's a concept that you address later on in the book that plays into that tell us the difference between foreshadowing and foresparkling <laughs> well the first difference is foreshadowing is a word and foresparkling is something I just made up I have always loved reading and I, I've been a big reader ever since I was little and like the greatest indulgence of my life is when I would get to take my little sandwich baggie of nickels to the Scholastic Book Fair and buy whatever books I wanted. And I went through a phase as a very young reader, like an elementary school reader, where I was really into, and this sounds morbid, but really into books where the characters died. Like Lois Lowry has a book called A Summer to Die. I think I read that book like three times. I read and reread The Diary of Anne Frank. I was really fascinated with death and not in a dark, like you would meet me as a kid and go, wow, that's a dark kid. I was actually a really happy-go-lucky kind of kid. It was more that I was, I was the kind of child who liked to be prepared for things. I liked to know 
all the answers so that I was never caught off guard. And so I was fascinated by death. What, what did it look like? What are the different ways it could happen? How should you be ready? What comes after? So I was reading a lot about death and a lot about sad books. And when I got a little bit older, they taught us in school about the idea of foreshadowing, that if you look very carefully at what you read, there are hints, almost like a treasure hunt, hints of what's coming up. And that blew my mind. As a kid who loved to be prepared and loved to gather information and be ready, I was like, this is unbelievable. It's almost like having ESP. I can just study the early parts of the book and I will know what's coming later. And later in life, I sort of came up with the idea of of foresparkling (laughs) because of course, foreshadowing is hints of all the terrible things that are going to happen. You don't often get good foreshadowing. Like if you have a moment where the character is looking into a puddle and sees a teddy bear with the arm torn off. That's not foreshadowing something good. That's foreshadowing someone's going to drown later or something's going to happen to a beloved pet. But I liked the idea of looking for signs that good things might be coming. And if I can't find them, actually planting them. And it's part of why I think people who meet me in real life say, oh, you, you seem so happy. You're so upbeat. Part of that is my almost trying to will the universe to be a happy, upbeat, safe place for the people I love to walk around. So I'm kind of doing my own version of the opposite of foreshadowing. I'm foresparkling, I'm trying to make it good by putting good out there. And someone close to my life insists that being happy is a decision. Yeah, I get that. I mean, you know, there are extremes in life and a lot of times you can't help what you feel, but I do believe a little bit in fake it till you make it. And I do believe in what you look for and what you spend time focusing on is what you will find more of. So I have to look really hard sometimes (laughs) to find evidence that the world is a good, kind, safe place but I do look for it because I need to believe it. I have children and friends and parents and a spouse and neighbors and people I like and love walking around out there. I can't always be looking for evidence that it's a horrible, dark, dangerous place, or I will be fearing for their lives constantly. And that is no way to live. And that points out to the title of the book, Bomb Shelter. And it's not just literal. It's also an emotional state. You could just hold yourself up and keep away from the world and not interact in anticipation of the pain that comes, but that's not living. Right, right. I mean, any bomb shelter is technically just a way of prolonging the inevitable. If there's been the kind of bomb that requires a shelter, things are not going to be great when you get out of that shelter, but you can keep yourself safe for a little bit. And human beings come up with so many different mechanisms to give ourselves the illusion of safety or to give ourselves temporary safety. There is no real permanent shelter from all the bombs of the world if you want to get metaphorical about it. But knowing that and accepting, well, okay, there is no permanent shelter. We're all going to die sometime. What can we do while we're walking around alive? We can love each other and be kind to each other and extend some empathy to strangers and do some small acts of caretaking for the people in our homes and be good friends to each other. And that shelter idea is what I was trying to find my way toward in this story after my world had been kind of turned upside down by this thing happening to my kid and knowing there was nothing I could do about it. I can't change it. I can't take it away. I can't make the world a place where there are no threats coming for my loved ones, but I can make get a little gentler for the people around me. I can make it a little happier for the people I know. I can do, like you said, I can do four sparkling and try to make the world a little bit of a better place for the people around me. 
one of my favorite kind of pseudo-Zen ideas is that every glass is temporarily unbroken. Oh, I like that. Like at some level in the future, at some point in the future, it will be broken. And if you accept that now, then you won't struggle against it so hard and you can enjoy the moment and enjoy the time that you're in without constantly feeling like you've got to steal yourself to prevent something that can't be prevented. On the night of your son's seizure, there was someone who had no idea what was going on. And for me, that seems like that would be the incredible beginning of a movie. My daughter. So my son is, you know, this picture of the upstairs of our house. It's sort of a square. There's his bedroom, her bedroom, the bathroom, and my husband's and my bedroom. And he's on the bathroom floor. My husband and I are in there with him calling 911. The, you know, the ambulance comes. These big EMS guys come running up the stairs. It's very noisy. It's very chaotic. But my daughter's bedroom door was closed. And because it was 4 a.m., I guess... The part of my brain that would have reasonably thought, this is a lot of noise, it might be waking her up, <laughs> just wasn't online. All our focus was on our son and these EMS guys are here and who's gonna ride in the ambulance and who's gonna stay behind? And it, it turned out I rode in the ambulance with him to the hospital and my husband said, well, I'll stay home and make sure our daughter gets off to school in the morning and then once she's at school, I'll come join you at the hospital. And when he went in to wake her up at 6.30, she was sitting on her bed with just you know sitting there with her legs crossed in the dark and he said, oh, you're awake. And she said, I've been awake this whole time. And she had been awake for two and a half hours, just sitting there in the dark, hearing everything that was happening, but not coming out, not having any explanation. And we never thought to go in there and go, oh, are you awake? Here's what's going on. So, I, you know, I, I carried around all this guilt for the fact that we just left her sitting in there hearing all of this. But we had a great talk about it afterward with her where we were like, just, you know, FYI for the future, if you ever smell smoke, get up and get out of the house. You know, if you ever, again, you know, see ambulance lights in the driveway and hear people running up the stairs, open your door. You're not helping anyone, including yourself, by sitting silently and quietly and waiting for someone to come get you. But that's very much her nature. She wants things to be easy for everyone around her. So she was doing what she thought we would have wanted, which is stay there, stay quiet, and wait for someone to come get you. She's going to have to embrace that agency moving forward. Yes. Well, she definitely has. <laughs> so it was very fortunate that you have a neurologist in the family who helped you advocate for your son in getting more tests at that moment instead of just letting it slide. Yeah. Thank goodness. So my brother's wife, my brother's, everyone but me and my family are, are doctors. I'm the black sheep writer, but my brother's a doctor and his wife is a doctor. and She is actually a pediatric neurologist, which is a miracle. So I texted her the first time from the ambulance at, you know, 4.30 or whatever whatever hour it was in the morning to say massive seizure, we're on the way to the emergency room. So from that point on all day, she was there in my phone. Epilepsy is such a wide catch-all term. It just means has seizures. And a lot of people, especially kids, will have one seizure and then never have another one. And it might've been brought on by you know, who knows what, they had a fever or whatever. So when we were in the emergency room and we'd been there several hours, someone came in, one of the neurologists and said, you know, there's no way of knowing why this happened and it may never happen again. So probably the best thing is to go home and just let us know if it does happen again. And I was texting my sister-in-law while he was talking and going, they're sending us home. They say we need to wait. And she says, stop, bar the door, say you will not leave without an EEG which is an electroencephalogram that measures your, your brain waves. So I said, stop, 
I bar the door. I will not leave unless I get an EEG. I was just repeating what she told me. They said, okay, fine, we'll do the test. And they did. And it showed this sort of trademark pattern that indicates this one particular type of epilepsy, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, which is a type of epilepsy you get as a teenager. That's when it starts and you have it for the rest of your life. So thank goodness I had her you know, there with me in my phone saying, don't leave without this test because it enabled us to have an answer by the end of that day. By the end of that day, we knew what he had. And we went home, which was terrifying to be released back into the world and told good luck, but at least we knew what we were dealing with. I was and remain very grateful for her. And you also mentioned with the condition that sometimes there can be small seizures that just looks like a person is zoning out. Mm -hmm. And before you mentioned it, just a few paragraphs later in the book, it made me think of your previous book and your son saying, I miss you when I blink. That is sort of a goosebumps moment in real life and in the book. And I don't remember exactly when that following year it occurred to me. I can't picture when it was on the calendar, but I can picture exactly where I was. I was sitting on the sofa in our den and I was thinking about the fact that this is the same little kid who used to, you know, make up these little rhymes and he, you know, inadvertently gave me the title for my last book, which was I Miss You When I Blink. And I thought, wait a minute. He's done this thing ever since he was little that we always thought was a motor tick. And even my sister-in-law was like, yeah, that's a motor tick where he would kind of shut his eyes. It was like a blink, but it was longer than a blink. It was like there was a magnet behind his eyelids pulling them down and then they would pop back open. And he's always had this tick and we never thought anything of it. But once we understood more about epilepsy and the types of seizures and this particular type of small seizure called an absence seizure, which when you write it out, looks like the word absence which makes perfect sense because when their eyes are closed or when they're zoning out, it's like, they're not really there, they're absent. I thought, wait a minute, I miss you when I blink. What if he was trying to tell me something? And I didn't get it. Now your son's condition is kind of a trellis or a lattice work for the book. It's not the the only story that you tell, but it is the foundation that kind of everything is attached to and, and interweaves with. And so you have all these other strands of ivy in part dealing with the many health conditions that we all have, but particularly your family. It seems everyone has something that they're going through. I love the way you put that, the trellis and the ivy. That is very poetic. I'm going to steal that, but I will attribute (laughs) it to you in the future. Yeah. One of the things that I'm sort of dealing with in this book and in this phase of life is like, okay, so we are all these little breakable, delicate human organisms. And at some point we all begin to break you know, stuff starts going wrong. And this is the human condition. We are all these thinking, feeling human souls trapped in mortal bodies, which is frustrating just on a personal level. It's frustrating to have this body where things are going wrong, but it's heartbreaking when you realize that all the people you love are also these thinking, feeling souls trapped in mortal bodies. And that's that's the part of the human condition that in this particular phase of life was keeping me up at night and making me insane. Just thinking, I can't save him. I can't save everyone. I want to take care of everybody and make sure that everyone I love is safe forever. And I can't, like, it's just not enough to love everybody hard enough. And I had to find my way towards sort of accepting that and then letting go and realizing, all right, I can't. So then what? But one of the ways that I sort of worked my way through it was thinking about all the other things we have. Okay. He has epilepsy. I have high cholesterol. 
a very unglamorous and stupid and annoying thing, but it, you know, invades my life. I have to eat Cheerios every morning. We have a dog who has a thing. We have a little dog named Woodstock who half the time just doesn't eat and no one knows why. No one has been able to figure out this little dog eating disorder, but we have this one dog that is like a constant struggle to get him to eat. We all have something and we're all going through life just trying to patch the holes in our little human bodies and keep ourselves going. And some of those stories are funny. You know, some of the things that happen to us are really ridiculous. Being a human being is both a heartbreakingly sad and tragic thing and an absolutely hilarious thing all at the same time. Yeah, with Woodstock, you know, I thought about the Shakespeare thing from The Twelfth Night, if music be the food of love, play on and give me excess. <laughs> yeah, totally. We finally got him to eat by playing him music. But the darndest thing is the music keeps changing. So for a while, he was recently, he was really into the soundtrack of Frozen 2. And bless my daughter for figuring that out. We had several great months where he ate really well as long as we played Frozen 2. And then one day he had just had it and that was enough. It didn't work anymore. So we had to just keep playing music until we found the thing that worked again. So what's going right now? We're in an in-between phase right now, unfortunately. So yeah, he's not eating very well. Every day we're like, let's try this. There's a new Vance Joy album. Maybe he'll like it. <laughs> in talking about your family's health issues and everything, how do they feel about being part of your writing? It's a question I can't really answer because it, only they could speak for them and, and they're not available for interviews because that's kind of the deal. But I can tell you that they have all been very gracious. I mean, my parents, my husband, and both my children read this book before my editor did, and they were given full veto power. Nobody took advantage of it, but they were all given free veto power. I mean, A, they're all of an age where they can give meaningful consent. Even my kids are not really kids anymore. One is an adult and one is almost an adult. But also they see and understand the difference between our lives in that book and our lives in real life. And they know how little, how teeny tiny little of their existence I've pulled in order to be able to tell this bomb shelter story. And they understand that 99.999% of their lives never shows up in this book. Like I don't even call them by their names. Like their names are not even in this book. So I think to them... They're like, yeah, you can tell those two little stories about me, no problem. Whereas when people read the book, like in real life, you've never met my family, but then you meet them on the page and I give you these very, what feels like a very personal story and a very up close look at something. You might come away going, wow, I really know your family. You gave me such a personal look at these people. There's a difference between what that might feel like to a reader and how it really is. And my family members understand that difference. It's not all serious that you have the laughs. I mean, Mary Laura, we want some laughs from you. <laughs> dance clown dance, that, that type yeah. of thing. So tell us why the turtles in your neighborhood are of concern. They were initially of concern because one of them, whom we named Frank, and I'm not usually big about naming wild animals, but this one I gave a name because he kept coming back, was knocking on our front door for a period of time. For a couple of months, we had this one turtle who would knock, and I mean loud, like knock on the front door, like we thought it was the UPS guy, and then we would look out and there was nothing there. He only did it for a few months, and then he moved around to the backyard. But when that was happening a few years ago, I wrote a piece about it for the New York Times. The gist of the piece was, here is this 
utterly bizarre thing that is happening and I can't make sense of it. And I like to make sense of things. I like to put a story structure on things so that things have like a beginning, a middle and an end and some sort of moral purpose at the end. And this was just pure nonsense. This was a turtle knocking on our door increasingly early in the morning. There were some times where it was like 5 a.m. and he was knock, knock, knocking on our door. So I wrote that piece for the New York Times. And then a couple years later, I wrote another piece about the turtles in our neighborhood because I don't want to give too much away, but we, we saw one that had been killed and we were worried it was Frank. Anyway, I live in a part of Nashville where just a couple blocks away is the beginning of a 3,000 acre state park. But we are surrounded by construction, people doing like the thing where they tear down houses and build much bigger houses. That's what's happening around us. So we're in this sort of strange conflict between the natural world, which is right here, and the world of, of mankind, which is very destructive. The turtles had to show up in the book because they were coming and going while all this stuff was happening in our family, but also because they're just such an example of, of an absurd thing that we couldn't explain. And to get dorky and symbolic about it, the turtles have what human beings don't have. They have a built-in shell. They can just tuck right up and be safe inside. They have a built-in protective mechanism, and we don't have that. So in a way, I'm a little jealous of turtles. And I have to let you know that I can't take you seriously because you're wearing Heather Gray. Why? Just because that stupid guy said something early in the, the book about not being able to take you seriously because <gasps> of some skirt you were wearing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was glad to finally be able to tell that story. I've been carrying that around a long time about that. <laughs> I went to a party. It was one of those parties that's like on the surface, a social party, but it's really just work people. And this was years and years ago. And I, I didn't know many people there. And I didn't know this person very well who walked up to me, but they were like, hey, cute skirt. And I said, thank you. Because I love to give compliments. I think that's a lovely way to make small talk. Just walk up to people and compliment something. So I was like, oh, thank you. And then they walked off and they said, you know, no one's ever going to take you seriously if you keep dressing like that. And I thought, well, what? That is so mean and also unnecessary. And also, who cares? Like, who is walking around out there going, boy, I sure hope people take me seriously all the time. That is not a goal that leads to happy living, walking around hoping people take you seriously. But, you know, I wear cute skirts and things that I like because it's, it goes back to like four sparkling. If I've got to go to a party and I don't know a lot of people and I'm feeling sort of insecure about it, I will put on my most fun animal print skirt and that's something that makes me feel happy. And maybe it will make other people feel happy to see it. Not that person, but maybe some people. You are very sympathetic toward people, but you talk about this woman who had a very bad day on a college tour. You extend her as much generosity as you can for someone you've never met. You didn't actually see the circumstance yourself. But do you have an instance recently where you kind of fell short of that mark that you were setting for yourself by giving that much sympathy? Oh, countless. I mean, the, the whole reason why this book has chapters in which you see me going through the motions of trying to have empathy for someone is because I have to do that all the time. I have less and less cynicism as I get older, I will say, but I do have some cynicism inside me. I can be very judgmental. I can have sort of a snap like, oh, why did that person do that response to things? None of that feels good. I don't feel happy when I'm judging people or when I'm being cynical about people. I feel much better when I can sort of err on the side of going, well, 
you know, maybe they're a good person who I just witnessed at a bad moment, or maybe there's some backstory there that would help me to understand why they behaved that way. That's why you see me doing it in bomb shelter. Again, it all comes back to force sparkling. I'm trying to believe the world that the people I love walk around in is safe and loving and good. And I need to believe that people are mostly good in order to believe that. So I make myself go through this empathy where I'm like, okay, if I'm at a, a stoplight, I hear an ambulance coming behind me and I start trying to pull over and get out of the way, but the car in front of me doesn't. You know, my first initial flame of rage is how could that person not pull over for the ambulance? Then they're terrible. They just want everyone to die. This is awful. The next thing, the thing I have to put myself through is okay, probably not. In fact, if that person is not pulling over for the ambulance, it probably just means they've never had to call an ambulance before. They're ignorant. They've been so lucky that they've never been in the position of needing an ambulance to hurry, hurry, hurry. And wow, how great that they've been that lucky. The luck's going to run out sometime. And I hope when it does that everyone pulls over and gets out of the way for their ambulance, but they probably just don't know better. I have to make myself go through that empathy. And when I do, if I can get in the habit of it, I'm a much happier person. Why did you approach the book through essays instead of having a traditional narrative? You know, I sort of have two answers to that. One is that I just love essays. That's my jam. That's my form. I can tackle anything if you give me 2,000 words because I know I've got to get to the point. I've got to travel somewhere and actually wrestle with that thing and get somewhere with it because I only have 2,000 words. It's not like I have 20,000 words and I can wander all over the place. So I write in the essay form because I enjoy it. I enjoy reading essays. I enjoy writing essays. But I will say Bomb Shelter, more so than the book that came before it, I Miss You When I Blink, feels to me like a memoir. In fact, it's little BISAC code, the official code that tells librarians where to shelve it is memoir, not literary collection, whereas I Miss You When I Blink was essay collection. I think of this more as a, a start to finish narrative, and I think of these essays, although I know they're built like essays, I think of them as chapters. And saying it's a memoir in essays, I think helps set the reader expectation that it may wander a little bit. I may digress from one chapter to the next. I may tell you a story from right now and then tell you a story from childhood and set your expectation by telling you it's kind of an essay collection, but it's a memoir. This one is a memoir. So now that it's been out for a while, what's next? Oh gosh, I wish I knew. The most comforting thing I can tell myself right now is that I have been here before. And I remember in the summer of 2019, after I Miss You When I Blink had come out in April, thinking, well, that's it. I've had my last good idea. It was a good run. I'm glad I got a book out of it. I got to go figure out something else to do next. Back to the penguins. Right. Yeah, I was like, I have nothing left. I have no idea what I'll do. By fall, I was writing a new book. And so I am now in that summer again, after a book that came out in April going, I got nothing. This is it. It was a good run. I got two books out of it. So I'm, I'm having faith <laughs> that at some point soon, something will bubble up and I'll be working on something big again. For now, I'm just working on some little things. I just finished a book review for a big publication about a book that I loved and I'm writing some sort of little things here and there, but hopefully something big will start up again soon. Always a pleasure talking with you, Mary Laura. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. This was fun. Mary Laura Philpot is the author of Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, 
which is published by Atria Books. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.